At the last meeting of Classes East, the churches decided to proclaim a day of prayer for today, January 31st, in response both to the recent and past cases of abuse in our denomination. And that day of prayer was with a threefold purpose in mind. First, as churches, to express corporately as a body to all hurting sheep who have been harmed by abuse our love, care, and compassion by publicly acknowledging their suffering, by corporately lamenting this evil and the untold harm it has done to so many, and by praying for God's healing for wounded sheep. Second, as churches, to humble ourselves before God, and in a spirit of repentance, confess our corporate sins and weaknesses, which have contributed to the grief of abuse survivors and their families. And third, the purpose is, as churches, to beseech the Lord's mercy and guidance, so that we may be faithful and active in ministering to survivors of abuse, and faithful in the necessary work of uncovering any abuse that is still hidden, for survivor's healing, the Lamb's protection, and the repentance of those who walk in this sin. So I want to reiterate that what we are doing here tonight is not just something we are doing as a single congregation. This is something that uh, the entire body of churches as a classis felt necessary. And I think that's pretty powerful. To call a day of prayer for such a cause ought to speak volumes to us regarding how deep of a problem this is, how widely and pervasively this has touched the classes, and how serious of a problem we have on our hands. This is not a light matter. We haven't called a day of prayer for other serious sins, such as drunkenness or pornography or theft. As serious as sin, those sins are, the fact that classes has issued a day of prayer regarding the matter of abuse should speak to us that this is something bigger than perhaps some of us recognize. And we must remember that the Holy Spirit himself has seen fit to lead our churches to call a day of prayer to respond to this particular sin, this sin that has been plaguing our churches more than we realize. I want to treat this time together this evening as something distinctly different from a worship service. I don't even have a, a meditation on a particular scripture passage uh, that I'm going to exegete and, and bring to you tonight. I want to give some time to prayer, and I want to give some time to explore again this topic of abuse. I know you've done this before as a church, and you've had opportunity, but uh, I haven't had that opportunity, and I'm going to take the opportunity tonight to do that with you. I want to open by reading Psalm 9. Uh, psalm 9 uh, is a good psalm. Some of these psalms at the beginning of the Psalter... Um, really speak to this reality of oppression and abuse. Uh, Psalm 9, Psalm 10, Psalm 11, Psalm 12, um, Psalm 13. Uh, all these psalms in this section speak of, of these things, and Psalm 9 captures it well. Let me read Psalm 9 with you. Here David praises God for executing justice, and he exhorts others to praise the Lord as well. To the chief musician upon Muthlaban, a psalm of David, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. 
I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou Most High. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou saddest in the throne, judging right. How comforting that is for all God's people and those who have gone through serious trials. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them, but the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. That I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they have made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higayon, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Now I want to spend some time also in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, our Jehovah God, our covenant-keeping Lord and Savior, we first of all thank Thee. We thank Thee for this truth, that Thou art the one who sits on the throne. Thou art the one who executes judgment, and Thy judgment will be righteous. And we thank Thee, Lord, that Thou dost arise, Thou wilt arise, and Thou wilt hear the cry of Thy people, and Thou wilt be a refuge for the oppressed, and Thou wilt be uh, a hiding place for those who call upon Thee. And we thank Thee, Father, that as a church and as a classes, we have this time together to call upon Thee. To seek thy help, to seek thy mercy, to confess our sins, and to express our grief and our sorrow unto thee and with each other. 
over the devastating atrocities and wickedness that are committed against thy people. Even by confessing Christians, even by those who even are our brothers and sisters. We thank thee for this opportunity tonight. We thank thee for this day. And Lord, we experience so much comfort, so much ease that even a day of prayer, we struggle even to appreciate it. And we are sorry for that, Lord. And we are sorry when we are not giving thee no rest when thou dost call us to give thee no rest. But we do thank thee for this time tonight where we can gather together as a congregation and we can weep together and we can look to thee together and we pray that it might be an encouraging time for thy people, especially for those who are survivors, victims of abuse. We thank thee, Father, for giving survivors and victims of abuse the courage to come forward to expose the sins for what they were, what boldness was required, what grace of thine was required. But Lord, we thank thee for that so that we as churches can deal rightly with this sin. And if need be, cleanse the church from evildoers. If need be, bring them to repentance and also to care for the survivors and those who are hurting to show the justice and righteousness of Jesus Christ to them, to serve them and their healing. And so together we can look out for each other, we can weep with each other, and we can walk together, striving to pursue thy holiness and thy glory in all things. Father, we pray, give us the grace to grieve and to lament. And we do have reason for grieving. We sometimes don't even want to think about these sins. We grieve over those who have been raped, Lord. Those maybe even who had their purity stolen from them. And maybe even by those who are confessing Christians. What sorrow, what pain, what hurt. What wickedness. We grieve over those who have been molested as children. Those who have been sodomized. Those who have been exposed to porn. Those who have been coerced into sexual activity that they never wanted. Or it didn't even enter into their mind. And they now grieve. They, they live with the scars of these things. And the hurt and the damage. We pray for those who were groomed, groomed by trusted family members perhaps, groomed by church members, groomed even by those in positions of authority in the church. We grieve over those who because of these sins fall into depression and anxiety. They suffer from trauma, self-doubt. They 
are perhaps tempted to begin hating themselves and Satan comes along furthermore and tries to tempt them into all kinds of other sins. And they're tempted to begin self-harm. Their relationship with those who love them is hurt and damaged and maybe broken. Their relationship with thee is sorely attacked and damaged. And we pray, Father, as thou dost grieve all these things, we pray that we might also grieve in the same way. For we know that thou art the one who grieves over the sorrows of thy people. Thou art the one who does not afflict willingly. We grieve over the sexual sins in our midst, the unchaste actions, the unchaste gestures, words, thoughts. We grieve it as we see it in ourselves. We see, we grieve over it as we even see it in the next generation. And we know the sinful natures that we've struggled with and that now we see perhaps struggling in the next generation. We implore thy grace, Lord, help us, sanctify us, purify us, protect us and keep us and our children from these sins. Protect their hearts. Protect their bodies. Keep them from temptation. and Deliver them from evil. We grieve over the sins of domestic abuse. We grieve over the sin of controlling spouses who set out to attack their spouses and their spouses' relationship with thee. Those who try to turn their relationship so that instead of serving the Lord, they make their spouse bow down and worship them. And their spouse is at a loss for what to do and strives to appease in order for the well-being of the children or their own physical safety. And they know it is wrong and they don't know what to do. We grieve over these things. We grieve over the idolatry, the self-worship involved in spousal abuse. Where the spouses are supposed to reflect Christ and his church. And yet one spouse is determined to twist that so that he becomes Christ. We grieve over the effects of these things upon the children. Upon the whole family life. We grieve over the news that cases have not been handled properly in the past. And we hear of that. We are sorry, Father. We hear of cover-ups. We hear of cheap grace. We hear where reconciliation is emphasized before repentance even takes place. And we grieve over these things. And the hurt and the pain it causes. We grieve over the hurt that the church has caused when it hasn't dealt with these sins properly. When we haven't listened. When we've been judgmental. When we thought we knew and we didn't know. And we caused further sin to take place. We allowed it to take place. And further hurt to take place. We grieve over our own corporate responsibility. And Lord, we grieve over whatever pride and naivety was ours that prevented us from seeing these sins when we could have seen them or we should have seen them. Forgive us, Father, for any sins that we have tolerated. 
In our own homes and in our own families, Father, we've had opportunity for self-examination as we've thought about these sins in the past. Lord, help us in our own battles against these inclinations for idolatry, self-worship, for control and manipulation and for deception. Oh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And sometimes we make ourselves blind to it. Lord, we are sorry and we do grieve over these things. Lord, we know we should be different. Oftentimes we think we are different. We can even boast we are different. Lord, we pray, change us that we might truly be children after thy own image. We grieve over children. We grieve over also the parents of the victims. And the sorrow and the grief that even they hold. As they maybe look back on signs that they could have picked up on if they only knew. And they have a burden that they feel. A burden of responsibility that maybe isn't theirs to bear at all. But they still feel it. Lord. Comfort us all in our grief. Cause us to know that Thou art our refuge. Cause us to know that Thou art our safe haven. And cause us to know that Thou dost work all things together for good, even though we don't understand it, how it's possible, and we don't see it right now, and we wish we would. We wish we could, and we wish, Lord, that maybe the, the burdens will be lifted, the the Things would be changed and things would go in a different direction. And yet we still pray and we pray and maybe there's glimmers of hope. Maybe there's even more sorrow. Lord, be near unto us. Strengthen our faith and cause us to know that thou art with us. Give healing, Lord. Give grace. Give healing for traumatized minds. Give healing for scarred bodies. Give healing so that survivors know thy love and fear thee and do not fear men. Give healing from the trauma so that when flashbacks come back and when our minds go in a dark direction, we might be able to turn from it and direct our thoughts towards Thee. We do thank Thee for the healing that Thou hast brought, that Thou art giving, and give more of it. Be near to those who still suffer under abuse, maybe, who need the courage, who don't feel the safety or the ability because of the threats of their oppressors, threatening their lives or, or their entire life's reputation. Lord, cause them to know that they can bring these things to thy people, the church, and thy people will, by thy grace, handle these things rightly. Be near to the advocates, be near to the helpers, encourage them in their mighty labors 
that they might be used of thee for healing and for encouragement. Help us as a church, as individuals, to be faithful and active in ministering to survivors of abuse. Not to pry, not to be a burden in any way, but to let them know we love them, we are there, and we are available if they need that. Use these experiences, use our current situation to knit us closer together as the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray, if it be thy will, give repentance to those who are in these sins. Give softening of hearts. And we pray, near to the families also of those who are in these sins, that they might be given the wisdom and the grace to interact faithfully, godly with with these sins. Give us the grace to examine ourselves. We pray, Father, give us so that we put away all respect of persons and we judge righteously. And use this service or this time tonight for spiritual healing, for growth, for growth in understanding, growth in compassion, growth in grace. We thank Thee for Jesus and that our sins are blotted out in Him and He purchased our bodies and souls and He cares for us and our comfort is that we belong to Him. Lord, cause us to know where our identity is found. And may that be our anchor as we go through the storms and billows of life. Hear us for Jesus' sake and bless us in this time together. For in his name we pray, amen. I've got two parts to this evening. Um... First, a brief overview of what abuse involves, and then second, a time of examination, and we'll sing at the end of both of those sections. First, I want to look at what abuse involves. I know you've done this before. Our consistory has put on a few speeches in the past last summer to help explain what abuse is. I've heard repeatedly that Prof. Dykstra's speech on what an abuser is was very helpful and instructive. I've heard that repeatedly. Our young adults also had Prof. Kuiper in and explore the topic of abuse with them. What I want to do is briefly review what abuse is, at least you know, from another perspective, so that, so that we know what we are mourning over. We know what we are lamenting about. What is this evil that has done untold harm to so many? What is abuse? Well, abuse, in general, occurs when a person in a position of power or trust uses that position to exploit or to violate someone who is more vulnerable. This exploitation or violation can take place in a variety of forms. Emotional, financial, physical, sexual, spiritual abuse or exploitation or violation. What lies at the heart of idolatry? What lies at the heart of idolatry is the sin of... What lies at the heart of abuse is the sin of idolatry. An abuser is one who worships himself. 
An abuser is one who sees himself at the center of his world and who says, I was created to be worshipped, to have my desires satisfied, to be in control, and have others serve me. And that kind of behavior happens in marriages. It can happen in so-called friendships. It happens in parent-child relationships. It can happen in relationships at church. It happens at work. And it's a worship problem. A person is worshiping himself. What also lies at the heart of abuse is this, the desire for control. Not only does the abuser want to be worshipped, he also wants to feel like he's in control. That's, that's part of his self-worship. He wants to feel what it is to take what you want, to be in control, to live as God. To me, that explains a lot about what abuse is, whether it be sexual abuse or spousal abuse or otherwise. The abuser wants to be in control. He gets his kicks off of being in control, having the mastery, and being the boss. That's why an abuser is also so hard to interact with. Because in one sense, it's, it's a game for him. It's a strategy game. It's a challenge. And his purpose is to win and maintain control of how others view him, maintain control of the whole situation. He controls the information. He controls the conversation. He controls the relationship. He controls everything. That's how he operates. He's fighting for control. He tries to earn respect. He tries to garner your trust because that's how he can exercise and exploit his control. And sometimes he's so given over to himself, so preoccupied with himself, that he truly sees himself as the one who is the victim, as the one who is misunderstood. He's so entitled, his life is so much about himself, that when other people don't agree with him, he becomes the victim. That's the abuser. An abuser is not one who has an anger problem. The abuser is not one who has a drinking problem. The abuser is not one who has a marriage problem. He has a worship problem. He is an idolater. His first love is not the Lord. As he's living, his first love is not the Lord. His first love is himself. I bring all this up because one very tangible way in which we can lament with survivors of abuse and one tangible way in which we can help survivors of abuse is by recognizing the sin for what it is. And by beginning to appreciate how the abuser has violated and exploited the very person of the one abused. And that is reason to lament. And that is reason for us to be very intentional in putting away this sin. And this is why this sin is worthy of a day of prayer. This is a special kind of sin. This is not just a falling into sin. This is not a slip. Quite the contrary. This is a methodical, deliberate calculated intention to sin and to do so without getting caught. And to have this sin in our midst and on such a wide spectrum is reason for great concern and reason for lamentation and reason for self-examination. This is the height of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is something that will certainly destroy the church. Think of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were full of hypocrisy. Think of, how, think of how they caught a woman in the very act of adultery and they dragged her before Jesus. And you almost wonder if they even staged it to catch this woman in the very act. And the question then even arises, how many of those Pharisees themselves were personally indulging in this kind of sin themselves so that when Jesus says, he who is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. And they all walk away. It's an offense. I know we won't have a perfect church in this world. 
But when we know these kinds of things are happening, let's appreciate it and let's take the kind of stand that needs to be taken. Another thing I think we need to appreciate is the idea of grooming. Whether with sexual abuse or domestic abuse, there is an element of grooming that takes place. That's what an abuser does. I'm going to use that to segue into the second, this next point I want to make as we look at the first section on education, what the abuser is now, the kind of damage that's done to a victim of abuse. Our understanding of abuse and what the abuser looks like helps us to understand the damage and the trauma done to a victim or a survivor of abuse. There is much damage done to a victim or a survivor of abuse. There, there are a few things to mention, and these things are certainly not exhaustive. First, consider what a victim of abuse learns about relationships. Consider his or her, her, I'm going to use the, the, the feminine pronoun, Consider her relationship with those in authority. She learns that those in authority are not to be trusted because those in positions of power and authority use that power and authority to exploit and to violate. That's part of how abuse works. Here's where we need to appreciate the idea of grooming. Whether with sexual abuse or domestic abuse, there is an element of grooming that takes place so that the abuser interacts with his victim in such a way that she learns to trust him Love him, hope in him, and look to his power as protection and safety. He grooms her so that he can start taking control of her world. And then oftentimes he also isolates her from others. Don't tell your parents about this. This is our little secret. Don't tell your parents or anyone or I will kill them. Don't tell anyone or I will publicly ruin your life. After all, I'm the one with power and authority. I'm the one with the good reputation. And the abuser grooms his victim. I think we understand how this works with sexual abuse. It, it works the same way with domestic abuse. How else does a man get a woman to marry him? He brings her through a honeymoon phase. He treats her like a queen. And I've heard stories where on the very night of the wedding... Or within two weeks of the wedding, the man flips the switch, he takes off his mask, and he begins showing his true colors, and he starts abusing his wife. Once he knows he can get away with it, once he knows that she's now under his control, he goes to work exploiting and violating her for his own worship of self. So consider the victim's relationship to those in authority. She doesn't trust authority. That's part of the damage. Consider, secondly, her relationship to herself. Abuse teaches her that she is trash. Abuse teaches her that she's unworthy, that she's a person that is not to be loved, probably never will be loved. She can't trust herself. She can't trust anyone. That's what abuse teaches her. Abuse results in fear, anxiety, anger, grief, trauma. It results in self-loathing. It results in shame. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. But the main reason is the perpetrator of abuse cultivate, cultivates this, kinds of, this kind of thinking in the mind of the victim. He puts the blame for the abuse on her. He tells her she is trash and that's why he treats her that way. He tells her that God wants him to do these kinds of things to her. That's the tragedy of abuse. He makes her watch porn with him. And then he rapes her. And then he blames her for not being like the woman that he sees on the computer. Even just using porn is abusive to his wife. 
You recognize that. Just using porn is abusive. This is what's going on. Think of a wife who is scared to be in her own home when she sees her coming, her husband driving up the driveway after work because she's not sure how he's going to attack her tonight. Is it with words? Is it with the silent treatment? Is it by telling her that she's fat and she stinks or she's got a disease and he wants to be nowhere near her? I, I'm, I want to be vivid with this because this is what's going on and, and, and this is so that we can lament what's going on. The Bible talks about these things. The Bible is very explicit on these things. Think of the gang rape at Gibeah at the end of the book of Judges. Think of how Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Think of how Penina attacked Hannah and shamed her for being unable to bring forth children. And then think of how Hannah is there at the temple grieving and praying to the Lord, and Eli walks over, the high priest, and he rebukes her for being drunk. And look at who Eli is. He's the most powerful man. He's an easygoing soul. He's a teddy bear, you might say, who's brought his own family to ruin by his own slackness. He even tolerates his, son, his son's committing prostitution right in the temple, right in the tabernacle. And he's totally ignorant of Hannah's circumstances. He barely cares to investigate what's actually going on here. And he rebukes her right away for being drunk. And that's how judgmental he is. This this loving, patient, compromising man. And to such a woman as Hannah, for whom the very thought of getting drunk was offensive, Eli's words must have been crushing to her soul. God's own high priest telling her she's drunk. How damaging. Think of David raping Bathsheba. And then she weeps bitterly over the death of her husband, Uriah. What unspeakable grief. And then think of God and his anger against David. So that the sword shall never depart out of your house. And what you did in secret, I will cause to be done in the open before the whole nation of Israel. In addition to what's been said, her relationship to authority, her relation to herself, consider the survivor's relationship to God. Her relationship to God is at risk of being entirely shattered. What does, what does abuse teach her about God? God who is the one with all authority and who, who could do something there. It teaches that God is either cruel or he's impotent, he's weak or he's uncaring. It teaches that God doesn't hear prayer. And that's what her abuser is going to impress upon her. Her abuser totally perverts the image of God. He who's the one with the power and authority in her life. And he twists it into the image of Satan. And when the abuser is not dealt with properly in the church, it teaches that God himself is on the side of the abuser. And that's an offense. Oh, you emphasize forgiveness, forgiveness, reconciliation, protecting the abuser's reputation when repentance itself hasn't even yet been demonstrated. How offensive. Come on, let's forgive and forget. Let's move on. He said he's sorry. You need to forgive. After all, we don't want to damage this man's reputation, do we? We don't want his life to be ruined by a mere slip into sin, do we? If you don't forgive him, you're going to crush him with feelings of guilt. Look at his tears. Look at how he's the victim. And maybe someone even says, well, it was your fault too. How did you entice him to such sins? How did you provoke him to anger? 
how come you let him do it? I would never stand for somebody treating me that way. Maybe if only you would submit better, things wouldn't have gotten this far. How damaging. That leads me to the third thing I want to address still in this first part. And that's this, how can we provide help? We've looked at the abuser, we've looked at the effects of the abuse, the damage. How can we provide help? This is really part of, at the, part of at the heart of the meeting tonight. How can we help? How can we care for victims of abuse? How can we do them good? I've got a few things here. First, understand what abuse is. That, that's part of the purpose of this whole first section. Let's understand. Let's make sure we understand what abuse is. How many times have I not heard an abuse survivor tell me that someone in church came to them and said, oh, I'm sure you two will work it out. I'm sure you'll make your marriage work. That comment itself shows a great deal of ignorance regarding what domestic abuse is. Abuse is not a marriage problem. And, and, and you, you are not in control of the, of the idolatry that your spouse is steeped in. You're not the one who's able to cure them. It's not something you can work out together. The problem is the individual's own sin problem, self-idolatry. Recognize what abuse is. By the way, the council is going to be going through the book, Is It Abuse? by Darby Strickland. Uh, This is uh, according to the um, recommendations, the the requirements of classes uh, that consistories and councils uh, get educated on these topics. And I would invite the congregation to read through that book with us when we start going through that book together in about a month or so. Is it Abuse by Darby Strickland? By the way, in the back of that book, there's an appendix, uh, warning signs, red flags for dating relationships. And if I had a teenage girl as a daughter, I would be making sure I'd be going through that appendix with my teenage daughter. Warning signs for abusive relationships. That's the first thing. Understand what abuse is. Second, listen. Instead of thinking we know about the topic, learn to listen. We don't do a good job listening. I, I don't do a good job listening as I ought. We need to be better listeners. Speaking about suffering, one writer puts it this way. First, know about people. Know about trauma. Understood what, understand what trauma does to human beings. And yet, in knowing, never assume that you know. No matter how many survivors you see, each is unique. If we do not understand such things, we will make wrong judgments. We will prematurely expect change. We will give wrong answers. We will fail to hear because we think we know. How often doesn't that describe us? We fail to hear because we think we already know. And then what we do is we minimize. We need to listen. Third, Reflect the heart of God to the survivor of abuse. That's our calling. We are called to reflect the heart of God to the survivors of abuse. Our words, our tone of voice, our actions, our gestures, our bodily movements, our response to their grief, our response to their rage, all of it becomes ways that the survivor learns about God. For those who have gone through the devastating experiences of abuse and who have been fed a bunch of lies by someone in a position of power over them, we have to reflect the opposite. 
We have to reflect the truth of who God is. We have to give positive experiences regarding authority and love and safety. We all need this in our own lives, but especially those who've gone through such devastating experiences. We are called in the flesh to demonstrate the love and the care, the patience and compassion, the goodness and kindness of God. And what I mean is this. If you want a survivor of abuse to understand that God is a refuge, then be a refuge for her. If you want her to grasp the faithfulness of God, then be faithful to her. If you want her to understand the truthfulness of God, never lie to her. If you want her to understand the infinite patience of God, then reflect that infinite patience towards her. Don't impose yourself. Don't intrude. Don't make it about yourself. And how often aren't we inclined to do that? Make it about ourselves. Fourth, how can we help? Don't show sympathy to an abuser. You're not helping anyone. In fact, you're showing that you don't understand the situation. You, we might have sympathy, but don't show sympathy to an abuser. Not, not, not when he's not showing repentance. You're, you're showing you don't understand the situation. You're showing you're not trustworthy. And you're not helping the abuser anyway. He may say he's a victim, but that's because his world still revolves around him. So he's really believing that he is the victim. And you're not helping him at all. And fifth, this is kind of a repeat, but learn to be humble. An abuser is one who is arrogant. He is arrogant in the depth of his heart. And God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We need to learn to be humble. That's how we can begin to help and encourage those who are survivors of abuse. That completes my first section of, of tonight's meeting where we look at the different facets, a few different facets of abuse. I want now to sing Psalm 161. The Psalter numbers that I sing tonight are all recommended to me from abusers themselves as Psalter numbers that they have, uh, that have spoken to them and been a number that they've gone to repeatedly. So Psalm 161... And we're going to sing all the stanzas.
Can we sing the last four on the top of the next page? Thanks. I was going to pray at this point, but let me get into the second part of this message, this reflection, and then we can pray afterwards. Here in the second part of this meeting, I want to focus on the idea of self-examination. A question we need to ask is this, why? Why are these things happening? Why are our churches plagued with the sin of abuse? Sexual abuse, domestic abuse, or otherwise. What is God teaching us? And before we answer that question, I want to emphasize this is a plague in our churches. I would say nearly every church at the local level, if not every church, is dealing with this issue. Young ministers who are starting out their ministries are being consumed with this work. I think you can even see shades of all these issues, even in the doctrinal controversy in the last few years. There's definitely elements of abuse that have revealed themselves throughout the fallout of that doctrinal controversy. We could even talk here about the abuse of authority. One of the most popular books among conservative Christians right now is a book entitled Bully Pulpit, confronting the problem of spiritual abuse in the church. It's a problem in the culture It's a problem in the church culture. And the question is, why? And for us personally, as Protestant Reformed churches, why are we dealing with this? Maybe are we even asking the question, what is God teaching? Or are we just going to say this is just par for the course? After all, there's other sins that we have to deal with too. No, I think there is a real opportunity, a real duty for self-examination. Why are we dealing with these things? Let me give you a few suggestions for an answer. I think one way we could answer that question is like this. Maybe 
This isn't entirely satisfactory. This isn't the only answer, but this is a consideration. And it's real. God is doing this in order to teach us about holiness. God is doing this in order to sanctify us. I think that should be understood and obvious. Again, maybe that's not the most satisfying answer that could be given, but God is bringing these sins to light in order to sanctify us. If God wanted to forsake us, He would let us go on in these sins. But I think God is turning us, He's exposing these sins so that we learn to deal with these sins faithfully and there is reformation that comes as a result of this. That's my hope at least. You see, God will not be mocked. And these sins that we're talking about are not minor sins. These are gross sins, offensive sins. And I, I see God in love exposing these sins so that we can put these sins out of our midst and we can care for victims. We have that opportunity at least and we can grow in godliness. It is a blessing to have these sins exposed. It is a blessing to have evildoers put outside the church. It is a blessing because these things were always here. And we didn't see it. We didn't know it. They were hiding. And now maybe I have to be sensitive to the fact that maybe there are still those suffering these kinds of abuses. Maybe there are more recent offenses that have been committed. But the fact is, even those kinds of offenses are happening because there's sin already in the heart, planted in the heart. And that sin has been cultivated somehow so that it's now manifesting itself in this way. A person does not just go out one day and rape a person or, or go on a date and rape the one that they're on a date with. It's a sin that develops and grows in their heart. And I would even say that porn is probably a big contributor to it. And probably a person's own home life plays a factor too. And God now is exposing these sins so that we see the sin and by God's grace, we see even how sin leads to more sin and other sins. And we can grow in sanctification and be aware of how alarming maybe the first sins are that lead to these sins. And we can be outraged by these sins and we can put them away instead of having them covered up. These sins are sins of hypocrisy. As I said, they are intentional, carefully executed sins. So I think God is showing us these sins in order to reform us, in order to prick our hearts and turn us collectively back to the Lord. And maybe, maybe even make a culture change, a culture change in our church that is needed. And that leads to my next point. Perhaps another way we can answer the question is like this. Why, why are these things happening? Well, because God is sanctifying us. But, but why is God doing this? Why are we dealing with these sins and I think we now need to respond to that question with another question. How much self-love actually exists among us? How much of this sin is rooted in what we could call the culture? And accompanied with that idea, how much is there in our midst of simply going through the outward motions? I go to church because I've always gone to church. And, and then on the side, I keep indulging myself in sin. This sin of self-worship, this sin of self-gratification, this sin of self-satisfaction. Right? Because that's what the sin of abuse ultimately is. It is self-love, idolatry. Or maybe I indulge myself in sins of arrogance. I speak crass, perverted jokes that put others down and they make me feel better. And that's how I talk to my wife, even in front of my kids. Perhaps by having these sins exposed to us, 
God is showing us that we have a problem with self-love in our midst. A problem with pride. A problem with arrogance. There was a minister a few years ago who spoke about what we need to think. About where we need to think of our weaknesses. And he mentioned four things. This was on another day of prayer event. And he mentioned four things. Denominational pride. Institutional security. A pure church mentality. And making an idol of peace. So that you don't address sins, but you just cover it over and you make an idol of peace. Keep things running smoothly. I don't know this church well enough to speak on these things and apply them to this church, but I think these are real things to consider. And I think each one of these weaknesses, if they are weaknesses, has been addressed even in what we're going through in in all these cases of abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, and otherwise. The Lord is shaking us. The Lord is waking us up from our slumber. He's using other things as well. And he's using this issue of abuse as well. Where is their pride and self-love that, that is being cultivated so that it expresses itself in this worship of self and controlling others and manipulating others for my own purposes? I hope God is teaching us about honestly talking about sin Dealing with it, exposing it, choosing to do what is right. I hope so. So that where needed, we can, we can stop self-congratulating ourselves on our outward appearance. We can stop being reluctant to talk about our weaknesses. We can make honest progress in pursuing personal godliness. We can talk more fully and more freely about our struggles because we're able to talk more fully and freely about Jesus Christ as our all-sufficiency And our hope, our only hope. I hope that's the fruit of everything that we're going through. So that the name of Jesus Christ, not not the name on the sign, not my last name, but the name of Jesus Christ becomes more meaningful in my life. And He becomes a more tangible presence in my life. So that that I truly see, I, I am and we are no different than anyone else by nature. We have nothing of ourselves in which to boast. We are hurting. We are suffering. We are weak. We are needy. We are in need of pity. We have nothing of ourselves. As prosperous as we might appear to look on the outside, we have nothing of ourselves. But all our hope, our only hope, is in Jesus Christ. And now together as the body of Jesus Christ, we are striving to fight the good fight of faith, faith, fighting that battle against sin every day, honestly and openly, knowing that we're all in this fight together, we can put, put away the appearances, the facade, and we can be honest and we can fight under the banner of our ascended King, knowing who we are in Jesus, knowing His name on our foreheads. One question I think that we should be asking ourselves is this. This might not be a fair question, but I'm, I'm putting it out there for our contemplation. So don't, don't just take this as a self-examination opportunity. Why do abusers find themselves comfortable in our churches? Do they? If they do, why do they? Is it because they think that if they just keep up the outward appearance 
then church will continue to be a comfortable place for them. That's a question for me too and for my preaching. Does my preaching allow this kind of sin to sit comfortably in the pew? That's a question for self-examination. Now, we also need to appreciate abusers like a good challenge. And they're very good at hiding and deceiving and they like to play the game and see if they can win the game. But still, it's, it's still worth asking the question. The question we should also be asking is this. Are we examining ourselves and seeing where we ourselves need personal growth in holiness? Have we been making practical changes in our lives in light of the sins that are being exposed? Are we having talks with our children about how boys are to talk about girls and how boys are to respect girls? Are husbands examining themselves and seeing whether their relationship with their wife has actually changed for the better over everything that we've gone through? And vice versa, wives towards their husbands. Or maybe we were already the perfect spouse. We always listened perfectly to our wife. We, we do dwell with our wife as the Lord calls us to. Have we stopped to examine ourselves to see whether there are abusive tendencies within ourselves? I tell you, when you see abuse staring you in the face, the abuser staring you in the face, you become frightened at it and, and you do see your own sinful nature. And it, it makes an impact. Have we considered what kind of example we are giving our children? Not only of how we are behaving towards our spouses, but what we watch on TV, what we allow on the computer. Are we making spiritually profitable use of the things that we've gone through? Instead of still minimizing things, still living in self-denial, have we profited from the pain that we've gone through? Have we experienced the pain? Or are we pushing it away so that we're numb to it, so that it doesn't touch us? Right? And then we can just keep going on with the status quo. Are we learning to deal with matters of sin? What are our idols that have been exposed through these experiences? Are we uncomfortable maybe with this kind of change? This change of getting rid of this idol so I can't use it as a crutch anymore in my life. Are we learning to be compassionate to others? Have we grown more compassionate in the past months? Or do we simply want to move forward without any meaningful change in our lives? In the big picture, I think God is using this to open our eyes, expose us to sins that have been hiding in our midst in order to sanctify us and humble us, in order to teach us, and in order that those hurting saints who are His children, who have been victims of abuse, might, finally, maybe that's too harsh, might get, might get the kind of care that they need and the kind of compassion that they should be receiving. One question that's come up in my mind is this. How many people have left our churches because sins were not being handled properly? It's saddening. It's devastating to think about how many hurting people, good people, children of God, Survivors of these kinds of sins who, who, who were damaged and hurting. And they left because, because they were not getting the care of Christ 
through the church? Are we lamenting this sin? Are we lamenting our other sins? Are we lamenting the so-called smaller sins? Let me ask you, getting to the end, let me ask you, have you changed? Have I changed? Have we changed anything about how we live as a result of the tragic news we hear regarding abuse, whether it be sexual abuse, domestic abuse, abuse of authority, or any other kind of abuse? Have we changed anything about how we live? That's, that's the challenging question, I think. May the Lord hear our prayers for help on this day of prayer. May the Lord continue to show us compassion and grace and help in our time of need. Let's sing two Psalter numbers, and then let's pray. Psalter number 73. And the abuse survivor who mentioned this Psalter number to me just singled out stanza five, so let's just sing stanza five, Psalter number 73, stanza five, and five and six. And then 36, let's sing all five stanzas, Psalter number 36.
Let us go unto the Lord in closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Holy Spirit who works within us and who moves us so that we can weep with those who weep. And as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we can bear each other's burdens. And by Thy mercy, we can show compassion and pity and be used of Thee as a help and encouragement. We pray, Lord, that those who are victims and survivors of abuse may know that this church, that our churches, may not only may they know, but may they truly experience that our churches are safe. Forgive us, Father, where we have been slow to learn Forgive us, Father, where we have been dull of hearing the cries and the words of those herding sheep and lambs. And work within us, Father, more that wisdom, that love, that righteousness and holiness, integrity and goodness of Jesus Christ, that we might do what is right that we might be a blessing. We pray, Father, that we might look at our own sins and, and forsake them and not flirt with them in any way, but flee from them. Help us in that battle, our own personal battles. In our own homes and families, Lord, help us as parents to be examples to our children, as brothers and sisters to do each other good, to care for each other, to have respect and a proper reverence for each other. We pray, Father, that we might continue to grow in our understanding of sin and how it operates, that we might help those who are ensnared in sin. We might also discern and put away from the church impenitent sinners who are dangerous, who are predators. We pray that we might appreciate the damage and the hurt and the grief that some, many of thy people experience because of these sins. And we pray, Lord, that we might truly be good listeners. And we might more and more reflect Jesus Christ. And they might be encouraged. And they might find healing through Jesus Christ. And using us as instruments in thy hand for that healing and encouragement. Lord, we have those in our own congregation whom we know. Those in our own families that we know. Those in the churches that we know maybe even those who've left our churches that we know and they are hurting and suffering. Help us to be a blessing and to do good. Take care of them. 
We thank Thee, Father, that this earthly life is not our home, not our final resting place, but we do have the hope of glory in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more sin, there will be no predators, there will be no perpetrators, there will be no sorrow, there will be no scars, there will be no hurt, there will be no tears, there will be no ignorance, there will be no folly, there will be no naivety, everything will be perfect. Oh, we long for that day, Lord. Preserve us until that day and hasten the day when our faith might be sight. Bless us going forward as a church, as churches, even with the work of classes and the third-party investigation and the work that has to go on there and the special committee and their work of investigating abuse, being here to our own office bears here, the deacons and showing the mercies of Christ and, and being ready to reflect Christ in showing mercy, being here to the elders and our pastor uh, as they seek also to care for the hurting and continue to watch over the church and protect the church and to deal where we have opportunity with sinners to show them the error of their ways and if it be thy will to turn them unto Christ. And bless those other institutions that are serving for these same ends. Bless the hands of thy people, Lord. Keep us safe in our different callings and stations in the rest of this week. And dismiss us now with thy blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.